So I know you've been traveling. So I don't know if you've caught the new theory going around on Twitter. Oh, please. Oh, yeah. It's evolving right now as we speak. I'll tell you what I'm learning. I'm reporting on the ground here in the States. It turns out that there's speculation that perhaps it was Tesla's sale of their Bitcoin that led to the drop in the Bitcoin market that forced Three Arrows Capital and BlockFi and Celsius and Voyager all into their deleveraged positions. And now who really knows? But if you look at the charts and you look at the range of time when Elon was selling, or I guess Tesla, as soon as they're done, the price drops like a rock. And that's when everybody was getting margin called. So this wasn't the selling that killed Terra Luna. This was a different bout of selling then? Possibly. It's all around that time because I think what kicked off the Luna crash was the drop in Bitcoin price, right? Well, it's funny because the narrative used to be that there was this huge institutional player. Right. Who had borrowed. Right. The old narrative was some bank, maybe BlackRock or who knows, right? Citadel, somebody went in, took a dump on the Bitcoin price to cause it to go down so they could buy up more or something like that. That was one of the theories going around. But now it just might have been Tesla selling. And that actually makes perfect sense because one, no one came forward and said, we were the geniuses who killed Terra Luna. I mean, they probably would have gotten a lot of hate, but that was a great trade. Wouldn't you want to brag about that? And two, the theme of crypto markets is peak stupidity. So wouldn't it be funny that instead of some clever person intentionally liquidating Luna and making a billion dollars, it was actually Tesla liquidating their Bitcoin holdings and barely making any money? <laughs> barely making any money, barely covering their costs. So that way they just don't go cash flow negative. So the irony here is, is that Elon was tweeting about how Tesla had diamond hands back in May. But the reality is they were just like all the other plebs that aped in while the price was going up. Then as the price crashed, things got tight. They needed the cash. And so they had to sell their Bitcoin. And now the rest of us get to stack cheap sats. It's beautiful. Every cycle, you get these professionals coming in, these larger institutions, and their narrative is always the same. These dumb Bitcoin plebs, they don't know how to trade. They panic and buy the top, sell the bottom. It turns out that these big players, they're completely captured by the peak fiat system. And their time preference is also incredibly short. And they end up buying <laughs> the top selling the bottom. It's beautiful. The financial call that Tesla had where they announced this on there, their CTO claims that they made a profit because I guess they bought slightly lower than where they sold at. So they made some money, they claim. I haven't looked into that, but I think you could argue that Bitcoin actually served its purpose for Tesla. They bought at a certain point, they made money on that bag. And then when they got to a point because of COVID lockdowns, they cite COVID lockdown in China is causing their factories to have to remain operational, but not able to operate at full efficiency. So they, in Elon's words, they're incinerating cash, they're burning cash, they're a cash furnace, like he said all these things about it. And so they were going to be negative. They were going to be in a really bad spot. They sold that Bitcoin. They supposedly made a profit. The company continues to operate. It sort of seems like Bitcoin did its job for Tesla. Maybe. Our argument is always that we're at a point in history where Bitcoin is a medium to long-term savings technology. And clearly Tesla bought and sold on a much shorter time frame. So to me, the advantage over holding cash or even a treasury bond or something is doubtful because you were exposed to a lot of volatility and you didn't even get to hold it long enough to enjoy the upside of that volatility so much. Yeah, but they needed immediate cash flow and Bitcoin is liquid like that. I think that's one of the reasons why Bitcoin in a bear market is really being seen as a bellwether because when people need liquidity quick, Bitcoin's a great option for them. And that's the option that Tesla employed here. However, Elon said that it's likely that they will buy again and it is possible the price continues to go down. So they may sell at 30 and they could possibly 
possibly be buying back somewhere in the 20 to 10 range in the future. But isn't Bitcoin rallying? Haven't we debunked that it's going down to 10 or 12? Or do you think that the Mt. Gox dump rumor is true and therefore you're going to have the Mt. Gox custodian do their typical market sell of 100,000 Bitcoin or something at the end of August? I don't know. For some reason, I'm just not that worried about that. That would be a temporary drop. People would buy the dip and it would come back. I look around and I say the macro environment that caused the initial crash isn't fixed. In fact, there's signals that were just at the very beginning of the situation. When I see Apple pausing employment, when I see Google pausing employment, when I see AT&T has reported that they're taking a loss in their quarterly expectations because consumers are delaying paying their phone bill, these are all signals that a recession may be nigh. And if that hits, I think we're going to be looking at a prolonged SAT discount. I expect it to continue to drop ultimately. It's possible, you know, at any point it could decorrelate and people could realize that Bitcoin is a safe haven, but there hasn't really been any change in the overall narrative. There hasn't been any great new wave of education of investors. So I don't think that's likely. Right. I think that is posited on people being smart. And I don't think that's the theme of this year. And on the subject of people not being smart, this is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Thursday, July 21st, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad. And I'm here as always remotely with me. Hey, it's Chris over here. Hey, Chris. Hey there. Hey there. Just over here stacking sats. Staying humble. Our episode today might potentially be a short one after the jumbo sized episode last week. The theme of this week's episode will be speculation. We're going to speculate on a whole host of slightly ambiguous information. We're going to start with a list of exchanges from noted crypto skeptic David Gerard that all have some red flags. We're going to talk about China and how Chinese citizens are trying to get out, but taking their wealth with them is getting increasingly difficult. And this has to do with their collapse seeing real estate bubble and their potential bank run that seems to be happening, at least in some banks in Henan province in China. We're going to talk about an interesting oil transaction that Russia is involved with that involves using different currencies for payment and for unit of account, kind of a Bitcoin story there almost. We're going to talk about the first ECB rate hike in more than 10 years. And then we're going to indulge in some wild tokenomics. The Skybridge Capital Fund has been gated. There is a detailed breakdown of the Solend whale story. There's a bit more there than I initially understood. This is very interesting. And then a DGen altcoiner named Chainlink God wrote a piece called the L1 Rotation Thesis. And I think it just sums up 2021 quite perfectly. We then have a brief energy section where we will enjoy some debunking of the Digiconomist Bitcoin energy FUD model. In our privacy section, we'll discuss Chainalysis article on mixers and how it abuses data and common sense and then counter that with a description of how CoinJoin privacy actually works and why it's not an activity that you can regulate because there's no custody. It's just people passing messages around. If you want to ban it, you're going to have to ban speech essentially. Then in Bitcoin education, we have Bitcoin Optech 208, which has two very interesting discussions, which we are going to speculate on wildly. Then we have Bitcoin feedback. Finally, all the boosts, which aren't too many, but we can finally read them out. Yeah. Okay, shall we jump in with Gerard's list of exchanges that he thinks might be getting wobbly? You're not a big fan of Gerard, are you? No, I guess I have a pathological desire to showcase people who are wrong most of the time, but occasionally right. 
And David Girard is kind of a famous blockchain skeptic. He wrote a paper or a book called Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain. I think he's someone that identifies some of the ridiculousness and excesses of the crypto industry, but is not able to separate out the real innovations and utility of Bitcoin from all of the nonsense. And so he's kind of created a place for himself on panels as a Bitcoin skeptic. He's written a book about the Libra debacle at Facebook. And I haven't read his book, so I can't speak to whether or not these books are particularly good. I've just heard him talk. And frankly, I find the things he says about Bitcoin to be kind of intellectually lazy and not really worth repeating. But this means that he's very sensitive to bad news about Bitcoin. And so if you want someone to sort of bring together all the bad crypto news, he's a good person to do that. Sure. All right. That's always good to keep an eye on. This article we link to is basically about how there are a bunch of crypto exchanges that are slowing down withdrawals. There is a exchange in Spain called Together, which seems to be gating funds. And they had an interesting announcement on July 7th where they told users to withdraw their funds because their accounts would be closed by July 20th. But then their app and website stopped working so no one could withdraw funds. Kind of a catch-22 right there. Yeah, and really, a lot of them are kind of being cagey about it too. Gerard's right here and there's some red flags. That's some shady stuff. The next section is about Binance and how Binance worked with a a Brazilian payment processor that seems to have been involved in some gun crime. This is kind of just Gerard muckraking. At the same time, one issue with poking fun at the shadiness of payment processors is that payment processors are actually a relic of the legacy financial industry. Generally speaking, crypto exchanges end up working with the shadiest payment processors because the legacy industry tries to shut them out. So payment processors are an easy target. There are a lot of shady ones. At the same time, it's kind of like criticizing the appendage of the legacy system that connects with cryptocurrency exchanges. So I feel like there is a bit of introspection there that is missing from Gerard's criticism. The other interesting news in this article has to do with KuCoin. There is a Twitter account called Otteru, which has been posting about problems at KuCoin. I don't know what to make of that. Otteru's name has come up before, but I can't specifically tell you why. I know that KuCoin is a Chinese exchange, and I feel like that is a difficult position to be in because China has sort of banned retail participation in cryptocurrency on the mainland. So as a Chinese exchange, what do you do with that? Yeah. And they're the fifth largest crypto exchange. One of the things that's been pointed out on Reddit recently is that they've been in some cases demanding extra know your customer data. I guess they asked to see screenshots of deposits from three to four years ago to, to verify your identity. Some really kind of extra above and beyond kind of stuff. It's just sort of uncomfortable. And that's sort of being interpreted as just an excuse to delay withdrawals? Yeah, maybe. And then also just looking at wallets, right, and watching the transactions, it, it seems like on July 5th, Three Arrows Capital transferred 30 million in stable coins to KuCoin. That's kind of a big deal. <laughs> Unfortunately, 30 million is a drop in the bucket of the billions that Three Arrows lost. Yeah. And then there's, of course, Vault, which I think we reported last week. They've definitely gone under. They were a Indian crypto exchange located in Singapore. Correct. Last month, they laid off 30% of their staff. Customers started bailing out too, so they halted 
halted withdrawals on July 4th. And basically, once you halt withdrawals, that's it. Yeah. It seems that most exchanges are operating some sort of fractional model, probably because if there's trading activity on the exchange, those people generally get wrecked or they have a trading bot that's liquidating them, doing wash trading or something like that. But you do get these situations where if you are fractionally reserved, then you can be bankrupt. And that seems to be happening to some of these exchanges now. Oh, boy. In the case of Vault, I got on my soapbox about it a couple of episodes ago. What was really disappointing about them is they positioned themselves as like a higher end savings account for your cryptocurrency. And they worked with a lot of quote unquote influencers on YouTube and on Twitter to do affiliate deals and push their services. There's countless YouTubers that were making videos about Vault and telling consumers, you know, go out, buy your Bitcoin, buy your Ethereum, and then put it on Vault. And they were getting a cut. That's your pet peeve, right? It's these influencers because in a way... This is so much worse than the speculative excesses of the 2008 crisis, because in the 2008 crisis, the second and third order effects wrecked the common person. But in these crypto-based scams, they're directly targeting retail. In a way, the institutional players are almost insulated from it, because the big players, the pension funds, they're not even allowed to touch crypto, really. So on the institutional level, it's kind of the maverick hedge funds and VCs who were all comfortable getting wrecked anyway, and then a huge amount of retail. Yeah. So I see where this criticism comes from. And who is Vault targeting when they make these affiliate programs? They're not going after institutions. They're going after average consumers. Who watch YouTube who get their investing advice from YouTube. Yeah, they're trying to take advantage of, of a sort of nascent market in a way that is still naive to a lot of these tricks. Well, we should move on. This is quite a list. I think that certainly some of it is highly speculative, but it's a bear market. So I think we should indulge in the bear market energy, perhaps. And I think we should learn from our mistakes. We got to learn from this. Otherwise, you're not really getting the value out of the bear market. Watching where we got a little carried away in the last bull run, looking at what turned out to be shoddy investments or poor business practices, things like that. Now we internalize this for the next run. We'll make a completely different set of mistakes. Entirely. We can't even imagine the mistakes we're going to make in the future. But one mistake we won't be making is having any wealth in mainland China, because basically Chinese policy seems to be going down in a spiral. There are continuous COVID lockdowns that are playing havoc with their economy. And we're not talking about light lockdowns like we had in the US, where there was no requirement that you stay in your house. No one was going to slap on the handcuffs and throw you in jail if you you wanted to go outside and walk around without a mask on. But in China, that will happen to you. You are literally locked in your house. And there have even been documented incidents of local Communist Party officials barricading whole compounds closed. So it's like there are three buildings that kind of share a driveway and, you know, you need to go through a single driveway entrance to get out. And they've built like a wooden barricade in front. So you're literally trapped inside there. And then there have been difficulties getting food to people in Shanghai. I know of two friends in Shanghai who have been losing weight because it's just difficult to get food and you have to order food in a group of 20 people in your compound. So you have to communicate with other people in your compound to do like a group buy. And then you're just getting old vegetables that are not very appetizing and you have to figure out a way to eat that and be happy. It is a really rough situation. It almost looks crazy from the outside and understandably people want to get out. Anyone who can leave China right now is trying to leave 
leave China. I have a friend, Chinese fellow, really proud of China, very on board with that whole phenomenon. And even he's leaving now. So when you've got the true believers who just can't hold their nose anymore and they want to get out, that seems really, really bad. And there are two parts to this. So on the one hand, the people who want to leave are now running up against the capital controls getting tighter and tighter. And so essentially we know that China's having issues with bank runs that have been reported on in Hunan province. And when you have large amounts of people withdrawing capital from your banking system and trying to send it abroad, this can create more pressure on your financial system. And so China is attempting to eliminate that pressure by essentially making it incredibly difficult to get money out of China. It's very easy to send dollars into China. That's always been super easy. Getting dollars out, in my own personal experience, has been more and more difficult over the past decade. And I think that it's sort of at a almost impossible state right now. And this was actually one of the reasons why mainland China had relatively high crypto adoption earlier than the US. And it had to do with the ability to get around capital controls. But the Chinese Communist Party has noticed and they've suppressed all exchange activity in mainland China. So I believe there's still a peer-to-peer market, but it's getting harder every day. You really feel for the people that are trapped in all of this. I don't fully understand why China is in this position, why they're experiencing bank runs. I've missed what's caused this. And I just find it incredible that the West is struggling, China's struggling, Russia's got their own thing going on. It really is just a worldwide malaise, financial malaise that we're all under right now. Yeah, maybe we should put the whole China section to bed because I think it all fits together quite nicely. We have a link to a PDF. It's a Jeff Snyder publication from Eurodollar University. He's giving it away for free for now, but this is the sort of thing that eventually becomes a paid research service. And he kind of explains the craziness in China. Because if we just look at the news and we look at their COVID numbers, they have basically almost zero COVID cases, but then they're locking down tens of millions of people if they get a single case in a neighborhood. It just seems like a disproportionate response. What is actually going on there? Jeff, I think, has the best answer I've seen so far. And the answer is that if you look back to 2017 and you look at Chinese GDP growth, it looks like Chinese GDP growth is going up in a line at about 7%. And 7% growth year on year, that's great compounding. And that sounds so great, right? 7% growth, that must be the best. You've got super high growth. But the thing is, China actually needs very, very high growth in order to maintain social stability. And this has to do with the geography of China. So China is essentially this big coastline and all the wealth in China is along this coastline. And then when you move to the interior of China, most of the geography is very mountainous and it's hard to build infrastructure, transportation networks. And of course, they have them now. They have high-speed rail. They have train lines to move goods around. They have highways. But the interior of China is much, much poorer than the coastal provinces. And as a result, you have this internal migration from internal provinces like Henan towards the coast, towards Shandong province or Shanghai, Beijing, Tianjin, Guangzhou, where all of the electronics materials and iPhones are made. And so this internal migration means that you constantly have to absorb internal economic migrants into a modern economy. And so for China, I would say that back of the hand math, 7% growth probably translates into 2% growth in the US because they have this backlog of people who are living subsistence lifestyles, doing very low level agriculture and stuff who kind of need to be incorporated into the modern economy. And if you don't incorporate those people fast enough, they're out there in the cold looking at everyone with their modern lifestyles and cell phones and 
and nice cars, and they start to get ideas. And China has this historical problem where when you neglect economic development in the countryside, eventually the people in the countryside come into the cities with picks and shovels and torches and overthrow the government. And this has happened many times throughout Chinese history. So what's the problem? The problem is that around 2017, China's growth trajectory changes. Instead of getting that 7% growth year on year, they're moving into a lower trajectory of growth. It looks like 6% growth, and it's probably massaged upwards. And then when COVID hits, growth takes a tumble and their loan creation falls. And what it kind of looks like to me is that the last 40 years of Chinese growth have been a giant debt binge. They basically take out debt and then they use financial repression to keep interest rates below inflation. And they get to use all of the internal savings of their citizens to build out cheap infrastructure like highways and railroads and factories. Well, that's kind of a fragile model once your debt gets over 120% debt to GDP. And they are above that ratio at this point, I believe. And as a result, when you get a shock like COVID, the whole system falls apart. And that seems to be what's happened in China. And so political legitimacy in China over the past 20 years has been based on the economic growth that the Chinese Communist Party delivered to their citizens. Well, now that growth is gone. So their legitimacy is based on force. And the lockdowns, the incredibly authoritarian population controls, this is, in my opinion, and in Jeff's, a taste of what is to come. Because they know they can't win playing nice, playing to the growth narrative. So they're defaulting to the authoritarian rule by fear and decree and force. And that's going to be the status quo in China for the future. That doesn't sound very good. That doesn't make them seem like the big economic threat that they've kind of been built out to be recently. The U.S. is always in search of a foreign boogeyman to drum up support for some sort of pro-nationalist policy. And frankly, China will probably still fill that role because it appears that some of the news around Chinese treasury holdings, they've been reducing their exposure to U.S. treasuries. Right. It seems to be documented that a lot of the discussion around that recently has been, so if something were hypothetically to happen around Taiwan, we really wouldn't want the U.S. to screw up our treasury holdings, so we'd better be divesting, right? Yeah. So it sounds like more conflict is on the horizon, but I would say that things do not look good economically or politically in China. So is that too dark, or can we leave it at that? You know, all roads lead to Bitcoin, my friend. So ultimately, bad news is good news for Bitcoiners. I hate to put it that way, but I do remind myself that ultimately, Bitcoin will be the safe haven after everyone has exhausted all other possibilities. And some of us have just seen it before the others. So these challenges, ultimately, Bitcoin would help some of these people. And as the world market gets less and less stable, they'll have less and less options. They'll have less and less safe havens. And after they've exhausted all other possibilities, people will realize Bitcoin has been there all along and getting more valuable. The network's only been online more and more. It's only getting more and more secure all the time with more and more applications and use cases all the time. That's right. The enemy of Bitcoin is good policy, social trust, and sound economics. So I wish we could be bearish on Bitcoin, but we cannot, given the facts. Long term, I am very bullish. And that's what this news does to me. (laughs) Stack more sats. And speaking of stacking, Russia seems to be stacking United Arab Emirates dirhams for oil exports instead of dollars. So there's an article from Reuters. What's interesting about this is that because Russia can't take payment in dollars because of the sanctions on Russian banks and oil trading firms in the dollar-based financial system, what they seem to be doing is taking payment in different currencies, so in, in this instance dirhams, but it looks like they're still using the dollar as a 
unit of account. And I just thought this was funny because a lot of criticism of Bitcoin seems to be, oh, well, you're still using dollars as your unit of account, so Bitcoin can't be a real currency. Yeah. <laughs> They're using dollars as a unit of account and accepting payment in dirhams. So are those fake currencies too? It's just an interesting mirror. You didn't hear the news too that gold's fake as well because people will uh, look at the value of gold in dollars as well. So gold's fake. Just to be super clear about what's happening here, the issue is that because the dollar is the global reserve currency, even though it's fading in that role, it's still the unit of account for the world. And that means that all of our costs are essentially priced in dollars. And so even though there might be a new monetary asset and network called Bitcoin that is really efficient in so many ways, and there might even be an old monetary tool called gold that has some interesting properties that are useful. Because everything in the world is priced in dollars, we have to value these things in dollars. They're not yet a unit of account. And a unit of account can be a weird thing. There have been periods in history where the monetary unit of account was a dead currency. So for instance, in I believe in the past in England, people valued things, I think in the 17th century, in terms of golden pounds. But the gold pound coin had not been in circulation for 100 years. And so they had this sort of imaginary pound in their mind that they would price things in, but then they'd actually pay in these silver coins that were sort of clipped and debased. And there'd be a lot of discussion about what these coins were worth, but these coins weren't used as the unit of account. The unit of account was this completely separate thing. So essentially monetary history is full of weird conveniences and workarounds and shortcuts that don't seem to make a lot of logical sense, but work in the moment. I had never heard that. That is fascinating. And we see the same thing happening here because the dollar doesn't exist for Russian oil exporters today, but they're still using it as a unit of account. Keeps it simple. People don't have to update their systems. <laughs> they don't have to change QuickBooks. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you can get away from QuickBooks, that's the reason enough to adopt Bitcoin, I think. Right. I mean, you know, there'll be a day when uh, QuickBooks has a Bitcoin module. That's when we know we'll have made it. Timestamp it. That's the story. <laughs> Now, should we put to bed the economic section with this juicy ECB article? Boy, how about this? I guess uh, the experiment with negative interest rates is over, eh? Looks like it. So the article is that the ECB has raised all interest rates by 50 basis points. Now, 50 basis points is 0.5%. So I think that this puts EU interest rates at about 0.5% because they were at zero right. or negative previously. There are a couple really interesting points here. One is that the ECB had signaled that they would only ever raise by 0.25 points. So they're breaking their previous promise. And I think that this is a sign of the times when monetary policy starts to surprise people, either to the upside or to the downside. That's a sign, in my view, of the central bank losing control and beginning to panic. It's their version of volatility. Right. And the other thing is this interest rate move makes no sense because if inflation is in double digits, arguably. Germany had a 12% inflation print at least one month this year. How exactly is increasing interest rates from 0% to 0.5% going to significantly affect inflation? Frankly, it looks like business activity is falling apart anyway. So these inflation moves, these have more to do, in my view, with market psychology than actual financial mechanics and the way that credit is created through the economy. Yeah, I think they're attempting to slow things down, right? And they hope that will 
will bring inflation down by just slowing the economy down. I would say that the economy is already slowing because energy prices alone have shut down manufacturing in most of Europe at this point. What I think is kind of interesting to think about is that these interest rate increases by central banks, they're presented unquestioningly in most media as this important phenomenon that is going to change how growth happens or the speed at which capital markets work or something like that. Uh There's this phrase, pushing on a string. I don't think that this is particularly important, except perhaps at the sovereign level. And this gets back to the second part of the story, which is that these interest rates are on government debt because central banks generally only purchase government debt to control these interest rates. And so this means that government debt is going to be bought at a higher interest rate. It's going to be more expensive for governments to roll their debt over. Well, this is a problem because Southern Europe is full of five countries, and this was the correction from last week, the pigs, Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain, not Slovenia, my mistake. And these countries are essentially insolvent. So if their borrowing costs rise, they go bankrupt and the euro system falls apart. So how do you solve that? Well, the ECB has a new program called the TPI, Transmission Protection Instrument. And essentially, it's a way for them to simultaneously raise interest rates. The metaphor is putting the brake on the economy. But with the TPI, they're going to buy as much pig debt, as much of this Southern European junk debt from the governments as they can. And so this is them kind of stamping on the accelerator as they're pushing on the brake. It's completely contradictory. At the same time, we've said before, the ECB is in itself a bit of a contradiction. It doesn't really make sense to have unified monetary policy with separate fiscal realities. But there you have it. Yeah, well, here we do have it. And I think another sign of the times is just how they're bending over backwards to invent these solutions. I mean, this is clever. As just an observer, you look at the situation and you go, what scheme are they going to come up with to solve this problem? Just like we're watching the Fed right now and we're thinking, you know, what excuse or reason are they going to come up with? to pivot because we know it's coming. And so what the ECB has done here with this bond purchasing scheme, this TPI, it's like they just invented this out of nowhere and they just they just fiat a solution into existence. And this actually leads beautifully into Arthur Hayes' latest blog post, which is a fantastical story of three travelers. And one of the travelers is the Knight Lagarde, the Samurai Kurodo, and the Yankee Powell. They're on a quest to slay inflation. So obviously these are the three main central bankers, ECB, Christine Lagarde, U.S. Federal Reserve Jerome Powell, and Bank of Japan, Haruhiko Kuroda. But it's revealed in their story that actually Kuroda and Lagarde are begging Powell for dollars because Powell has the power of the almighty dollar. (laughs) It's a funny bit of prose, but the insight I think is correct, which is that the essential problem is a lack of dollar liquidity globally. As the U.S. raises interest rates, It sucks dollar liquidity out of the rest of the world because those funds move to the U.S. to take advantage of these marginally higher U.S. government interest rates. And as a result, they're less interested in Japanese government debt or European government debt. Now, this creates a problem because it means that the dollar strengthens as a currency and the euro and the Japanese yen end up going into a spiral because there's less demand for their government debt. So their central bank has to buy this government debt and that creates more monetary units, which weakens the currency further. And so you can see how this can lead to a inflationary spiral. They could essentially say your policies are leading to this, to the Federal Reserve. Right. And this is kind of the problem of having a single country with the world reserve currency. A slight digression. 
digression. The U.S. government was cheating the Bretton Woods system in 1971 when Nixon closed the gold window, as in the U.S. government had been spending more dollars than it had gold. And so the system was insolvent at that point. It was a fractional reserve gold system. But the thing was, the system would have been fractional reserve and could have gone insolvent without the U.S. even spending too many dollars. Well, how's that? The reason is that when you're the global reserve currency, that means that there are banks all over the world that have dollar accounts. And when they create loans, they create more dollars. Even if you have $100 of gold and you only create $100 in the US Federal Reserve and put that into the world, when banks take those dollar deposits and then lend out dollars, they create more dollars. So the system can go bankrupt just because foreign banks are creating more dollars through the process of lending. And so there's just this constant dollar liquidity problem inherent in having the dollar as the global reserve currency. Does Bitcoin solve that? Yes, in the sense that because Bitcoin is neutral and finite, you can create credit on top of Bitcoin, but everyone knows going in open-eyed that that is a fractional system. And so credit creation on Bitcoin will probably be different. It'll probably look more like the free banking era where banks and other countries create currencies on top of Bitcoin and then you can redeem for Bitcoin, perhaps with certain restrictions, who knows. But we're at the point in the dollar system where it looks like the next stage in keeping the international reserve currency system working will be the U.S. using dollars to buy foreign government debt. Because Janet Yellen has already denied that they'll do this. But it's sort of like, Janet, no one asked you. Why are you talking about this? And that is, I think, a treasury and Fed policy. They first deny something just to get the idea out there. And then in a couple months, they do it. So I imagine that that the innovation this cycle will be that the Fed and the ECB and the Bank of Japan balance sheet will increase tremendously in the next couple of years. But it might not just be their own government debt. They may be cross-buying other governments' debt in order to sort of support this international dollar system. That seems risky. I agree. Yikes. I mean, it seems like one goes and then we all go. It's going to be a domino, like a literal domino situation. Literally how it works. This is something that we've talked about previously, which is that the way that legacy finance works. Every asset on my balance sheet is a liability on your balance sheet. And so legacy finance is actually a system of contagion. It doesn't get stronger the more financial intermediaries you have. It gets weaker because now a single entity going bankrupt or a single entity failing, it affects the balance sheets of all of its other partners. And this is sort of why Bitcoin is necessary today because the world is so large and so complex and so interconnected that we need a way to hold assets and self-custody them so that if a bank in Thailand that has speculated on real estate goes bankrupt, that contagion doesn't spread to our local credit union and wipe out our retirement savings. Boy, no kidding. I just feel like you could go deep on this. I mean, if you think about buying each other's debt is a Band-Aid to a Band-Aid to a Band-Aid, right? Like they keep managing the situation. They keep coming up with these solutions that then kind of set up the next big disaster that requires even a bigger solution. And so I'm just trying to think, where do you take things when the major economies are buying and selling each other's debt and that begins to blow up? Where is the next solution? What's the next level? And it feels like things get really complex really quick and we could eventually 
eventually end up having a really dangerous combination of impossible problems to solve that they just keep coming up with more and more crazy solutions. And people are just totally unaware of what's going on. Yeah, this is not a time in history to just accept the status quo and do what your parents did. I think this is a turning point. Well, let's start having some fun because I was really just blown away when I saw that Anthony Scaramucci, aka The Mooch, the very short run press secretary for Donald Trump, he started a company called Skybridge Capital and he wanted to get in on the crypto fun. And so, of course, because of his name and because of his reach, he went on every CNBC program, every Fox business program that would have him. He was a speaker at several crypto events. He had charts describing how Bitcoin was going to go to the moon. And he was essentially managing money for idiots that were, I guess, the greater idiot that were willing to actually give their money to Anthony Scaramucci, the mooch, to manage and put into crypto. And of course, this week on the 18th, it came out that Skybridge Capital, an investment firm founded by Scaramucci, has suspended redemptions and their investment fund is down 30% year to date. So, I mean, I just can't imagine why anyone would give their hard-earned money, fiat or Bitcoin, to the mooch. And, well, here we are. Now they've suspended withdrawals. When you gate a fund, this is the death knell for a money manager because you're really screwing your customers because essentially they want to get out and you're saying, nope, yeah, can't. And so this is kind of burning the bridge for the mooch. So funny story, Skybridge was his company before he tried to get a job at the Trump administration. And if you think about it, it's kind of weird. Why would this financial guy want to work in government, especially when everyone knows that he's the worst communicator in history? Don't let him talk to people. He's the worst. Well, the answer was he actually wanted to work in the Trump administration because if you work in the executive branch, you get this waiver. It's like a tax waiver. It's like a tax get out of free jail card. And the Mooch had done some big business deals, and he basically had like a $40 million tax bill that year. And so his goal was to get into government to get this waiver so he wouldn't have to pay taxes. So this guy is peak fiat, peak corruption of public institutions. He's really the worst. The funny thing about him is he's such a buffoon. How on earth is he managing a $230 million fund? Right. Well, the thing about the Mooch is the Mooch is a fund of fund guys. So his value add is that he knows all of the real traders who have really good funds because they all know him. He can kind of pool all your funds together and then invest in other funds. The Mooch's whole thing is he is a Mooch. He's mooching off traders and professionals doing real stuff. And he's letting you kind of get in the door via the mooch and he's going to take a cut of that. He's always been kind of worthless and buying Bitcoin to put in a fund and charging management fees. This is preposterous because you could just buy Bitcoin. The whole point of digital assets is you can literally just buy them and hold them in your own wallet. So the idea of charging someone so that you can do this... I know. (laughs) It's great. And this is a harmless story because if you invested with the Mooch, you had a lot of money because there were huge minimums to invest in this. You know, this isn't mom and pop. This is the Wolf of Wall Street. And you were an intellectually lazy idiot because you could have just held Bitcoin. You could have done the work, figured it out. But instead, you trusted the Mooch and the Mooch burned that bridge. It's beautiful. (laughs) 
You know, there's a quote that I just was reminded of from Satoshi Nakamoto, and it is, quote, Bitcoin was designed to be protected from the influence of charismatic leaders, even if their name is Gavin Andreessen, Barack Obama, or Satoshi Nakamoto. Nearly everyone has to agree on a change, and they have to do it without being forced or pressured into it. So you can have your Elons, you can have your Mooches, but Satoshi saw that coming and specifically wrote, it was designed to be protected from the influence of charismatic leaders. I only wish Gavin Andreessen had read that quote, then maybe he wouldn't have supported Bitcoin XT which was a 64 megabyte block increase or something. Yeah, I I don't remember the full history of the quote, but the fact that he name drops Gavin and Obama is pretty funny. Now, did you read this Solend whale story? Because we talked about it on a previous episode about how the Solend DeFi lending protocol on Solana wanted to basically change the rules of their contract so that they could take over the funds that some whale had locked in the platform. Right. And remember the vote to do it, like 92% of the vote was one individual. And it was a great story because it revealed that this was a DeFi protocol that was decentralized in name only. They were seizing user funds. This is a sort of thing that would be a scandal in legacy finance. And it is a scandal. But there was a little bit more to the story. Dun, dun, dun. It turned out that the whale had actually screwed the protocol. What happened was this whale had a huge amount of the Sol token, Solana token. They dropped this token into Solend in exchange for a loan of US dollar pegged stable coins. And then they disappeared. So actually what had happened was this whale sold. They weren't borrowing. They were actually <laughs> selling their Solana because they had so much that if they had tried to sell it, they would have sold off the price. So they figured out that actually by borrowing and against it and then just abandoning the collateral, they were actually getting a better price than market dumping it. Ah, clever. Yeah. That makes sense though. And so this did create problems for the protocol because this was a huge chunk of change. And if you liquidate it, it creates the kind of price death spiral for a thinly traded altcoin with no real demand. I kind of see the logic of why they wanted to take control of these funds and liquidate it in a more controlled fashion. At the same time, they're saying the quiet part out loud. This is a thinly traded, centralized altcoin, and it's not decentralized. It's not fair. It benefits insiders. And to save the protocol, they kind of had to lean in on that centralization. They failed the Howey test in real time. Like They just proved their security. Ah, we got to pitch that one to Crypto Mom. Now, it really was the DAO, right? It wasn't like the Solana developers. It was this DAO team that made this decision, I believe. But it, it kind of speaks to the overall <laughs> ecosystem. Well, we've talked about Chainlink before on the show, and we have a post from Chainlink God, and he's come up with the L1 rotating thesis. And this really captures how Ethereum's current limitations have created a market for these Ethereum-like forks to come around and promise to be faster with bigger blocks. They get, of course, a bunch of excited enthusiasm. The price pumps out, the price pumps up, and then they dump, and everybody who aped in becomes the exit liquidity for the founders, and the cycle just repeats over and over again. And and he has dubbed this thesis the layer one chain rotation thesis. He says it's remarkably simple. You fork Ethereum's code, you make the blocks bigger and faster. Thanks, Elon. Referring to Elon's incorrect tweet about Dogecoin. You fork all the core DeFi apps, you pay people to use it, maybe something like Anchor or something like that. And then you got yourself a cutting edge next generation blockchain that's cheaper and faster than Ethereum. And then you can go out there and say, this is the next big solution. It's like Ethereum, but even better. And we totally saw this just rinse and repeat over 2021. What I really like about this Chainlink God piece is that this is a true 
altcoiner who professes to believe in the Chainlink protocol. And they are looking retrospectively at this cycle of altcoin rotation. And they don't quite make the connection that it's kind of this peak fiat meaningless, nihilistic, financial speculative activity. This person thinks that there is some value at the end of this rainbow, and I disagree. At the same time, I think that this article sums up the 2021 mania quite well. It explains all of these Ethereum clones, all of these DeFi protocols that have very silly names and are just copies of each other. This is kind of the structure that underlies it. So it's worth a read if you're interested in that kind of thing. And if not, we can move on to energy. You guys know me. I feel like the energy attack is probably, at the moment, the most serious thing that faces Bitcoin in terms of slowing down adoption and harming the mining industry. We talked recently about some senators that were going after Bitcoin. They were citing some outrageous energy uses. We've seen recently articles from The Verge, Ars Technica, Variety, The New York Times, all that have said that Bitcoin's energy use is actually down right now. Why are they all over the place? What's going on? What's with the model that they're using here? Well, this past week, the Bitcoin Mining Council, that's like a half a dozen or more Bitcoin mining operations, larger businesses, and Michael Saylor, they had, I guess you could call it a keynote or an event. And we'll link in the show notes about a six-minute clip from that almost three-hour event. Because in this six minutes or so, the presenter does an absolutely fantastic job systematically debunking the model that Digiconomist is using that all of these outlets and Senator Elizabeth Warren are using as their sources for Bitcoin energy's use. And he's got graphs, he's got data sources. It's really well done. That's linked to the show notes. But the highlight is the fundamental flaw in the model that's being cited by everyone right now is the model ties Bitcoin's power use to Bitcoin's price. So when price is up, the model automatically just says Bitcoin's using more energy. And when price is down, the model automatically just says less energy. It doesn't even account for the hash rate at all. And in fact, point in case, when China kicked about 40-ish percent of the miners out of China and the hash rate took a significant dip, you can actually go back and look at their chart. It's like a huge drop in the hash rate that we've never seen before. At that time, Digiconomist showed that the energy use of Bitcoin was up simply because it was during the bull run. Super flawed. It's absurd. If you cut the hash rate by nearly 50%, there's physically no way around it. The power usage of the Bitcoin network goes down. The other thing that the model doesn't account for is any efficiency gains since the S9 mining hardware, which there have been many, significantly. The other thing that the model doesn't account for is all of the miners that have come online since China here in the States. Something like 60% of them are using renewable energy now or more, or they're doing captured uh, methane off-gassing. And their model doesn't account for that either. It's all assuming inefficient miners with a certain power rate. Oh, and then one last thing that their model doesn't account for that completely invalidates it is these Bitcoin mining operations are large enough power consumers and they're a business that they buy their power a year in advance from the power company. So regardless of what the hash rate is, regardless of how many miners, they've already paid a year ahead and they'll negotiate the next year's rate at their contract renewal. The model doesn't account for that either. Is that last point because when you buy power in the future, the power provider is going to plan to use the cheapest energy source, which is probably renewable for that power because they can see it down the pipe coming at them. Right, right. You got that. And you also have the fact that it means that the Bitcoin miner could remove devices or add devices in that year period, changing their energy use footprint that would be completely uncaptured by the model. I see. I feel like the theme of the last two episodes is bad models because we talked about the stock to flow model and how that is a fundamentally flawed model 
that basically correlates Bitcoin price with Bitcoin price. So it just creates this line that goes upwards. And now we have this Digiconomist model. And frankly, I feel like Digiconomist is only a big deal because they have the best name on Twitter. That's just such a great portmanteau, <laughs> digital and economist. But yeah. they're pretty famous for making incomplete critiques of Bitcoin energy consumption and not being really interested in engaging with sort of pro-Bitcoin scholarship on that issue. And so it's not surprising that their model is a dumb model. They have a lot of inputs. They can kind of fit a line to what they think the historical data is. But then when we have deviations from historical patterns, i.e. the hash rate drop when China banned mining, now their model hasn't been trained on those sort of deviations. And it turns out that it was a stupid model. It was just copying the data. It wasn't trying to understand the relationships between data. And so hopefully this debunks it. It's absurd to think price equals power use too. Like that just is obviously bad on its face. That doesn't make sense for any industry. Well, it might follow in the sense that a higher Bitcoin price means that theoretically more expensive energy sources are economical to mine Bitcoin. But it doesn't follow the technological evolution we've seen for literally everything where we get more speed at lower and lower power usage all the time. I mean, that's how we get to the iPhone. That's just technology. They're not accounting for the fact that newer ASICs are using less power. That's becoming more and more common. Yeah, good point. That's a big deal. The problem is, is that people use this data. They may be known for not being very deep in their investigations of Bitcoin, but The Guardian, The Verge, Business Insider, The Independent, all in the last few weeks ran negative Bitcoin articles based on this bogus model. That's to me why it's so frustrating, to be honest with you, is just you hear this unrelenting kind of attack on the energy usage and you look at what's happening right now in Texas as all of this bad press is coming out and the thesis is actually proving correct. The Miners are coming back online this week that we record after shutting down for a significant period of time to help the grid, making Epcot's increased investment in renewables actually profitable. The Bitcoin miners are being a good power use citizen. The balance is working out. They're balancing the grid. It's happening right now. And it just seems incredible that we're ignoring this when the administration, as we record just yesterday, declared a climate emergency that will include investments in increasing productions of renewable, including potentially using the Defense Authorization Act to compel companies to produce more solar panels locally. Like we're really going all in on wind. They're just financing two new wind farms in the South that'll be off the coast. So we've got to figure this out. And we see the model working out right now. And I don't know, it's just so frustrating to then see like the Digiconomist come out with this bullcrap that drives the narrative and continues to mislead people. We can't afford this. We got to stop screwing around. Our energy situation is getting super, super precarious. And the longer we delay, the more we screw around with these false narratives, the more we'll cost ourselves. It's literally, like I said earlier, we are going to exhaust every single other possibility until we come around to the logical conclusion. And in the context of energy, is that nuclear power? Yeah. And also just you have to make renewables work. The wind doesn't always blow. I know it's cliche, but the sun doesn't always shine. And we are seeing the density results of that. We're seeing it right now this year dramatically. Right. The fundamental problem is that Bitcoin disrupts established power structures. It turns the world on its head. It makes the financial elite realize that they were naked the whole time. The supposedly valuable speculative assets that they were pumping were valueless. And now there's this new finite 
and real store of value that they can't control. And this changes political equilibrium. It changes so many things. And as a result, I think that, frankly, I know at least in my own life, when you're confronting something that's kind of terrifying and like completely disrupts your whole life. Radical. Sometimes it's hard to engage with it directly and you kind of look at it at the corner of your eye and you're almost subconsciously desperate for any excuse to dismiss it and not have to look at it with both eyes and really perceive how it's about to screw up your whole life. Yeah, that's what I do with my health. So I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I hear you. So <laughs> so essentially, I think that haters really are latching on to this whole energy narrative because it's a really convenient way to dismiss Bitcoin and not have to worry about it. And it's just an environmental catastrophe. Let's move on. Especially when energy prices are so high, they're likely to get higher in the fall and it's so hot. That plays a role too. Right. And I mean, logically, they should be happy because if Bitcoin really is this speculative joke, it has no fundamental value. Then if you increase the price of keeping this Ponzi scheme alive, it should die off. But we all know that that's not what's going to happen. Bitcoin is going to bide its time. The natural incentives of the mining difficulty adjustment will come into play. Miners may shrink. We may see mining move back to smaller operations, private operations, home miners, who knows. And then eventually the system sort of comes into equilibrium again, tilts bullish, and then we'll have a whole nother cycle again. It just keeps on happening. We joke that the number one threat to Bitcoin is good policy, good economics, all of that that. But in reality, I think you could argue the number one threat to Bitcoin is a failure of adoption. People don't adopt it, then it can't really be a medium of exchange at the network effect level you'll need. Obviously, it'd still be around. It'd still be worth something. Even if it just capped at the existing number of users, it wouldn't go away. But it's not going to get to the status or the store of value that we want unless we continue to see adoption and people continue to see the value in a decentralized monetary system that is not connected to the state. If that doesn't happen because of energy FUD considered an existential threat, I mean, the president of the United States just declared a climate emergency after all. And so when you have a climate emergency and you have extremely high energy prices, these are a really, really dangerous recipe to create a very hostile Bitcoin backlash that a savvy politician like, say, oh, I don't know, Elizabeth Warren could leverage to build more and more steam on banning Bitcoin mining and demanding that they change the proof of stake or something silly like that. Bring it. True. I know. <laughs> Thank you. That would be my Christmas present because if there's one weakness in the Bitcoin industry, it's the grifters that attach to it. And they generally have companies that do something ancillary to Bitcoin. And so actual state level attacks, this wipes out all of the affinity scammers. It tanks the price temporarily, but we don't care because we have a long time preference. So it just doesn't worry me at all, really. I think that every time Bitcoin runs into a problem, we get to see how well designed the network and the incentives are. And I don't think that that thesis has changed, even though we're now dealing with sort of ESG energy attacks at a nation state level. Right. That is what it is. That's a good way to put it. I guess this is the beginning of the they fight you stage. I feel like they're joining and fighting simultaneously, like they can't make up their mind. It would make sense. I mean, what we're really, truly talking about is centralization versus decentralization. And the centralization is going to team up, right? They all have kind of the same goal. I think that brings us nicely to privacy because the way that centralized forces team up on Bitcoin is via chainalysis. We mentioned last week a article that was sort of bashing Bitcoin privacy based on a chainalysis article on mixers. And that mixer article is kind of interesting because chainalysis has this weird paradox where they have to kind of scare everyone about people using cryptocurrency for evil supposed purposes, but they can't scare them too much. What they want is 
continued cryptocurrency adoption and integration with legacy finance so that they can sell maximum spyware tools. You know what this reminds me of is the antivirus industry in the late 90s. The Norton Antivirus team would issue these big research papers indicating what a global threat viruses were to businesses and how they were the one that had the solution to save your company millions, protect your privacy and your end users. And they would just do all this research about viruses and malware, and they created a whole huge industry out of it. Right. And hasn't antivirus totally been debunked at this point? Yeah, you have what now remains is essentially a really simple scanning system that you can just get built into Windows. (laughs) Right. Windows Defender is kind of like the gold standard, I think. (laughs) Yeah. We have Clam AV on Linux, but I've never actually heard anyone use it. Like maybe you use it on like a special system. Yeah. Or on a file server, you know, you could crawl on a a nightly scan or on a mail server, you could scan incoming email. And I just kind of make that connection because that's what this chain analysis article does is they claim, you know, nearly 10% of all funds going to a mixer are for illicit activity. And so they're essentially saying, yeah, crypto is great, but without us monitoring it, you're going to have all this illicit activity. Actually, it's not even that bad. The share of funds going into anonymous tools, which they generalize as mixers, but they include CoinJoin as well, which is different because a mixer is a custodial service where everyone sends me Bitcoin and then I give you back someone else's Bitcoin. So I've completely broken the deterministic links between this Bitcoin, but I know the person and I've temporarily taken custody. Right. And so mixing is illegal because it's a financial activity. It's a financial custodian. And so if you operate a mixer, you're an unregistered financial institution. A lot of trouble if you run a mixer. A CoinJoin transaction is completely different because a coin join coordinator never takes custody of the funds and instead is simply helping people participate in a collaborative transaction. This is just communication. It's totally legal. You can't ban it really if you have any kind of protection of free speech. Now, the way that Chainalysis twists this data is they're not saying that 10% of funds going into mixers are from illicit activities. Mm Mm-hmm. They're saying they've identified a lot of illicit addresses and almost 10% of these send into privacy tools. Uh. So it's actually, <laughs> it's, it's total nonsense. So actually the fraction of illicit funds in mixers is infinitesimal, but of the bad addresses, almost 10% of them are looking for privacy. Oh my gosh, let me clutch my pearls. Better buy a Chainalysis package to protect your business. And they're really, you know, selling to governments. They have huge contracts with the U.S. federal government with the FBI and the Department of Justice. And so that's really who their customer is, people with taxpayer money. I remember once back in the day, one of the guys from either Elliptic or Chainalysis went on a popular Bitcoin podcast and tried to briefly defend their anti-privacy stance. And their claim was, hey, I love Bitcoin. I just want it to be safe. That's just a complete BS argument. That's the legacy financial system, the legacy law enforcement system saying, actually stopping crime, actually investigating criminals. This seems really hard. So why don't we just surveil everyone in society and then retroactively go through the data using patterns we've developed and see if things look suspicious. And then we'll just investigate the suspicious people. You know, maybe the way I've described that doesn't alarm you, but this breaks democracy. This is basically a world where you're living your life 
life, you're just doing stuff, and then it turns out years later that you did something, and now it matches a pattern that is associated with something that the government doesn't like, which might not even be something illegal. In the U.S., that could be assisting someone with getting an abortion or an appointment to a woman's health doctor today. This is activity that is illegal in some places, but is certainly not immoral by most people's standards. And years later, they can come through this data and then target you and look through every detail of your life because it's all been saved in this data. This breaks the social contract because you're not applying laws equally. You're looking for targets and then applying all the laws to them. This is a tool of autocracy. This is an authoritarian tool. This is what police states do. It's not possible to have an open society where people are not afraid of their government if this is the way that you do law enforcement. And the cherry on top with chain analysis besmirching things like coin joins and mixers to promote what they do really is just perfect. We have a link in the show notes to an article that is a great read on this topic. Brother Rabbit on the Samurai Dev team describes CoinJoin in this lengthy article, and he makes such a great point in there, Dad, that I feel like completely just ends the debate for me. He says, imagine a future, and people already do this today, so imagine a future where your employer pays you in Bitcoin at your request. If you're not using the fantastic Sparrow wallet and CoinJoining that stuff when you receive it, your employer can track every single thing you do with that Bitcoin. They'll know every item you bought potentially, or at least everywhere you shop after payday. That just seems silly to me. So I think as a standard practice, more of us should be doing coin joins. And I think that is starting to happen just to normalize it. And also this is actually how the fiat system works. So I've never heard of a service that monitors your employees spending habits, but that is a service you could create today because I can buy anybody's credit card transaction history from a data broker. And if I associate that with certain employment identifiers, maybe I can sell employee purchasing history to employers. Maybe employers have certain standards, like they have some sort of religious belief. So if you're buying alcohol or some sort of recreational substance, they're going to be uncomfortable with that and fire you or sanction you or something like that. That's entirely possible in our fiat system today. And there is literally no protection other than using cash. So Bitcoin actually offers protection. The privacy trade-off of Bitcoin, it creates this unforgeable costliness that makes inflation impossible and double spends impossible. But in our legacy system, we get no privacy. We get no assurances against inflation, confiscation, and financial chicanery. And we also have no option for privacy other than throwing away digital payments entirely and defaulting back to cash, which is under threat and will probably disappear in our lifetimes. So all things equal, my money's on Bitcoin and CoinJoin. Yeah, coin join away, my friends. Let's all do it. Let's normalize it. Nothing wrong with a good coin join. Should we maybe throw in a high level description of coin join? I mean, everyone should read the article, but just in case the term is confusing. Yeah, sure. In fact, the article has some nice visualizations. So if you're more of a visual learner type, head over to the link in the show notes. So the way that a coin join works is a bunch of people have a wallet that has a function that allows you to coin join. And we all queue up and we all want to coin join. And essentially what we do is our wallets are all communicating with a central server that is listening for these messages. And we all signal, let's say there are 10 of us, to the server that we're ready to coin join. And then the, the server helps all of our wallets communicate and create a joint transaction. And so we all send our coins, which are the same denomination, let's say 0.1 BTC, into this 
joint transaction, and then we receive our coin back. But from the outside perspective, since all of these coins are the same amount and they all go to the same place and then they come back to new addresses, it's almost like we emptied our pockets of coins, threw all our coins together into a crucible, melted them in a furnace, and then minted new coins and then <laughs> took these new coins out. For Chainalysis, if they're following my transaction history and I coin join with 10 other people, now they need to follow these 10 other people. And then if one of these 10 other people coin joins again with 10 more people, now they have to follow 20 people. And if there are more coin joins with these post coin join UTXOs, very quickly they have to be following thousands of addresses and they don't know which one I am and which one is other people. Right. And so Chainalysis is always hinting that they're working on technology to de-anonymize CoinJoin. And I've actually known people who work for Chainalysis. I always played nice and was sort of respectful towards them because I wanted to get someone drunk and ask them about this. And I succeeded, actually. Maybe that was tricky of me, but I thought it was an important bit of information that we all needed to know. Hey, that's how some of the best journalism is done. Are we journalists now? Maybe I'm a journalist. I, when you're pulling stunts like that. Well, I had it from the horse's mouth. I won't say which company this person worked for, but no, no, they cannot handle CoinJoin. They cannot handle CoinJoin at all. When they see anything that even looks like a CoinJoin, like a Samurai Stonewall transaction, which is sort of a fake CoinJoin, they throw it away. Mm. It messes up their models. It messes up their graphs. It's a black box. It screws up their system so bad that they have no hope of disentangling it. And it's all just marketing. So can I ask you a question? This is like the number one question that we get in Matrix 2 whenever a CoinJoin comes up. And I don't really understand if this how this works. Can they, they being anyone, could like a, a merchant, could someone tell that you've coin joined your coins? Oh, yeah, definitely. That seems like an issue, right? Because you could see a world where those become less fungible because somebody doesn't want coin joined coins or something like that. So I think people are worried about tainting their Bitcoin 2022 and it's an issue that then bites them in 2035 or something like that. I admit I am worried about that as well because my solution right now involves coin joining before I sweep to cold storage. And and I'm a little concerned that I may be reducing the value of my Bitcoin by coin joining them. I think that one, if we enter into a dystopian future where if you want to sell your coins on Coinbase and they've been coin joined, Coinbase will like call the police. Then in that future, actually, you should have coin joined anyway. Now, why would I say that? Because do you think that the non coin joined coins will be treated nicely? No, there'll be some sanction in this world where maybe you have super high taxes, maybe you have to register your coins or send them to a centralized custodian. So if you haven't cleaned up your privacy, you're completely exposed to whatever the policy is, fair or unfair. Now, if you have coin joined coins, first of all, it's not clear necessarily who owns them. Maybe this disassociates these coin joins from any KYC you had to provide if you bought from a regulated exchange. Coin joining protects your privacy, and I think that's a universal good. Now, if you have to deal with some sort of KYC custodian that doesn't like coin joined coins, you have the coin history in your wallet. So if you have to, worst case scenario is you could share with them the coin history and kind of show them where it came from. 
you know, mm. and that would be bad for the privacy of everyone else you coin join with. Right. That would be a horrible dystopian future. Yeah. But coin join only destroys the history of the coin to the outside observer. You still have the true history. So worst case scenario, you can show the history of the coin. Now, this gets to a problem, which is that Bitcoin hasn't achieved fungibility at the base layer. It's possible that layer two technologies like Lightning may help with this fungibility. But frankly, fungibility is very difficult. I think that the Fediment proposal kind of solves fungibility in a very interesting way. And so again, that's like a layer two fungibility solution. They actually, I think, consider themselves a third layer. Oh yeah, because they're sort of on top of Lightning too, right? Right, right. Yeah. So that's really, really interesting stuff. I don't know if we have time to talk about it today. At the end of the day, there is no perfect fungible solution outside of something like Fediment, which creates this kind of Chaumian level privacy cache, but at the trade-off of having a custodian. So we can kind of create like a black box that can do total fungibility inside the black box. At the same time, let's look at our other options. Do you have something like Monero? Monero has basically coin join and ring signatures built into every transaction, and this makes the sender and receiver impossible to discern. And so Monero is considered default private. But what Monero is actually doing is basically adding a lot of noise to the blockchain for every transaction. And this default privacy, it means that Monero is generally not accepted in too many exchanges and isn't widely used outside of certain darknet markets. Monero's kind of gotten privacy at the expense of adoption. Bitcoin has adoption and some privacy tools, but it's opt-in, so it's imperfect privacy. Frankly, I think that Bitcoin is the thing that is probably going to succeed somehow, just because because Monero doesn't seem to necessarily have the adoption traction and the base layer scalability because they're adding noise to the blockchain to sort of create these private transactions. I guess I just don't see a way to sort of get to fungibility outside of something like a third layer solution. Because if we look at even cash, technically cash has serial numbers on every bill. So we think of cash as perfectly fungible, but actually there are situations in which cash is not fungible. For instance, if you're using US dollars over overseas and you have a dollar that's dirty or damaged overseas, people will not take anything other than crisp dollars. So dollars actually become less fungible in certain environments. And we could end up in a world where cash is increasingly restricted and merchants have to start tracking bill numbers to do KYC and stuff like that. Fungibility seems to be in many ways a universal problem. And I understand why it's concerning in the context of Bitcoin. I think it's kind of an unavoidable problem. I think that maybe solutions like Fediment will make mitigate that or some potential new cryptographic technology in the future. Yeah. I also think more wallets building in CoinJoin would just get more users automatically using it. Like there are now, there's that mobile app, you'll remember the name, that just automatically is coin joining in the background. Or like with Sparrow, you can tell it to go through multiple cycles. So it'll coin join several times and just sort of do that in the background for you as a matter of course. And I think we need more software doing that automatically. And then it would become economically unviable to eliminate some coins based on if they've been coin joined. And in my scenario, in my head, I'm picturing like banks, like you go to use Bitcoin as collateral for maybe a mortgage and they won't accept coin joined coins or something like that. And so I think the only way to make sure that never happens is to make sure that a large chunk of the user base has just automatically coin joined. Right. It becomes too difficult to fight. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to normalize financial privacy. There's this weak attack on privacy where people are like, oh, well, what do you have to hide? To which I like to respond, hey, do you mind unlocking your phone for me? And say, wait, why do you want to do that? But I'd just like to look through all 
all your pictures. <laughs> it's like, what's wrong with you? I was like, I'm sorry, do you have something to hide? Or maybe wanting privacy isn't weird. I don't know. Well, and I think the other thing that people struggle with that are not maybe digital natives, especially, or work in IT, is I think people don't realize that the collection of data over a long time allows people to go back and look back in time with a new set of moralities and laws and social norms. And I think that's the real danger is you could be buying from a place today. You could be patronizing a website, a service, whatever, that in 20 years you get in trouble for. It's just human nature. And so when you have a data set that is as rich as a Bitcoin transaction data set, it inevitably will be used by some institution, some establishment to look back and track what people have been doing. And then it'll be judged with hindsight. I mean, we have contemporary examples of this today. If any woman who lived in Texas went to a women's health clinic and paid with a credit card and not cash, yep, that data is out there. And they might be sued in the future or prosecuted for exercising a right that they had today that they won't have in a month or two when these new laws come into effect. And I just think that kind of second order effects of data collection like that are just kind of hard for people to grasp yet because it's not a reality they've had to live with much so far. We generally only appreciate dangers when we've touched the hot stove, gotten burned. So I guess everyone's about to get their privacy burned and they'll discover how valuable it actually was this whole time. And the Monero people be like, we told you. (laughs) And we'll just be so resentful because they were right the whole time. Maybe, maybe. I don't think so, actually. I think when you look at how Bitcoin is the solution to how the existing system is completely falling apart, the existing system is opaque. It's centrally managed. There's backroom deals. It's built on secrecy. I mean, literally, the Federal Reserve is literally built on secrecy. And then you go Bitcoin. It's transparent. The math is provable. Every coin is accountable. I think it just that was the solution, the antidote that people that humanity needs at this time. I think ultimately, when you're talking talking about a store of valuable that's accessible to the people and you're talking about perfect money, there had to be some compromise in order to have everything accountable and to have a provable scarcity. There just had to be some compromises there, especially at the state of technology to get this thing to the network effect it needs to be at for this point in time. And the fact that there are solutions means it's a manageable problem. It's not unsolvable. So therefore, it's not a disqualifier for Bitcoin. I don't say that to disparage Monero. I think it's a it's a worthwhile project. I also like to see the privacy enhancements happening in Litecoin, which has gotten them in trouble with the Korean exchange already. I think that's also a positive development. Let's get everybody out there trying this stuff out. Let's test it out for a bit. We'll fold the best stuff back into Bitcoin. You watch. And look, if the idea of fully engaging in CoinJoin gives you second thoughts, then CoinJoin half your stash to start. And that gives you a foot in both futures, where one where CoinJoin is more valuable than KYC coins and one where it's less. That's great advice. That is very true. You could. This episode is brought to you by my podcast, The Self-Hosted Show. If you like sovereign money, you'll probably also like sovereign data. I mean, that's really what we talk about over there. Experiments, home lab stuff, building things so that way you can learn and apply it to your job. Go check out The Self-Hosted Podcast, selfhosted.show, or just search for Self-Hosted in your favorite podcast app. And that brings us to Bitcoin education. This week, we have Bitcoin Optech 208, and it is a doozy. Some weeks, there's not too much, but this week... You've got a nice, juicy optech with two main discussions. And the first one is something that, have we talked about tail emission previously? I don't think so. Should we introduce that concept? If we did, I have forgotten it. Because when you and I were talking about it in the pre-show, you lost me. I, I could not recall talking about it. Tail emission is something I'm familiar with because I talked about it for the first time with Seth for Privacy in this podcast's first interview. Tail emission is a policy that Monero has. And essentially the idea 
idea is that instead of having a fixed limit to the total number of coins, let's say in the case of Monero. So if Monero has, and actually I don't know the exact number, but let's say Monero has a 21 million coin limit like Bitcoin. Now, every epoch, the number of Bitcoins emitted in the block subsidy halves. And this is a way to fairly distribute Bitcoins because you give them to miners and this gives miners an incentive to secure the network. And you don't have this problem of, okay, I gave all the coins to the founder and now the founder is the richest person in the world, but this actually discourages anyone else from using the currency because the founder just dumps the coins whenever it has any value. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. So the block subsidy halves every epoch. So it goes from 50 to 25 to 12.5 to 6.25 and so on. And this eventually gets to zero in about 140 years. And Monero has decided that in 140 years, or I guess um, maybe 130 years now, when the block subsidy gets to zero, maybe there won't be enough fees to secure the network. And that'll be a problem in 130 years. And so what they've decided is to just create a fixed amount of new coins at the end of the initial distribution. And so because it'll be a fixed number, like one or two coins per block, it won't actually increase the new coins very much because we were distributing 50 coins per block for the first epoch. That was a huge amount of coins. And so one coin per block after the original 21 million, you'll eventually get 22 million coins, but it'll take another thousand years or something. So the argument is that this tail emission might create security once the initial distribution of coins is done. And my response is, why are we talking about this? Because this is a problem that will happen in 130 years. I mean, we don't even know if there's going to be human civilization in 130 years. I just... <laughs> It kind of baffles me that we're having this conversation. Yeah. And it seems like any decisions made today will likely be overrided by humans in about 130 years. <laughs> They'll make some change. It's almost inevitable. It feels like maybe there's not enough problems to solve kind of a deal, but I know that's not it. If I were to wildly speculate why this has come up right now, I got to imagine it's in part due to the bear market and miners really grinding badly, hurting badly right now. And so maybe the developers are just seeing the overall economic situation for Bitcoin and thinking, gosh, what's it going to be like down the road? And so this conversation has started. What is your wild speculation? Okay. So my wild speculation is that actually this is just kind of a accessible and fun navel gazing conversation. This is something where even if a change were made, it would only affect miners over a hundred years in the future. So I don't think that there's any backroom discussion about a serious problem in the present that this relates to. So I think that it's just kind of like one of these conversations that you can have a beer and chat with your friends. And this is core dev culture at the moment. I could totally see that. And it's it's one of those topics that just about anyone is safe to have an opinion on. Right. You can sound smart with completely divergent opinions on this because it's entirely speculative, I think. Now they think about it in software projects. These are always the discussions that get the biggest. This is very different than the second main point, which has to do with fee sniping, because I think we can speculate that something is happening in the background. Here. So what exactly is fee sniping? Yeah, I had to kind of figure this out because I think I've maybe heard the term, maybe, uh, but here is the definition. Fee sniping occurs when a miner deliberately remines one or more previous blocks in order to take the fees from the miners who originally created those blocks. Uh, it goes on to say, although remining a previous block is less likely to succeed than simply extending the chain with a new block, 
it can be more profitable if the previous block is worth much more in the transaction fees than the transactions currently in the miner's mempool. So in other words, then maybe that previous block had a whole bunch of transaction fees in it. So you run it again and you snipe the fees. And I gather that the reason that this becomes a bigger problem over time is that as the block subsidy reduces and the fees are a bigger part of miner rewards, there's sort of more fees to snipe. And so the question comes up, like, is this actually a problem? Um, is this something that is happening right now? Because there hasn't been any real public discussion about this in any of the developing, well, there hasn't been any public discussion of this in any of the standard outlets where you'd catch something like this. But yet here it is, and they're talking about mitigations already, and it's just kind of making me think, Maybe there's some miners out there that are getting a little extra greedy as things get tough and that's gotten back to the dev team and now they're kind of looking at what they can do about it because it kind of feels like one of those things they don't start looking into until they realize it's a problem because somebody's been doing it. That's my wild speculation. I wonder about that. I've been meaning to do the Bitcoin from the command line self-taught GitHub course for a while and this might be my motivation to finally do it because I'd like to be able to extract more data from my Bitcoin node and I think that nodes might keep orphan blocks that theoretically could have been fee sniped. So we could basically just count these blocks over time. And if we see more and more orphan blocks, we could say, okay, mm. this doesn't look like an accident. It looks like it could some, be a signal. Right. And, and then yeah. you could do something clever. Like you could take the orphan block and add up the fees and then compare it to the block that sniped it and be like, oh yeah, this is actually a high fee block that got orphaned. So maybe there is a fee sniping program. But you would think that this would be solved by distributed mining because if there's no mining pool that has a huge advantage, then fee sniping is kind of a dangerous approach, right? Because you have to mine two blocks and someone's already mind a block. I wonder if this is also reflects concerns around hash rate centralization in the future or maybe a current problem that we're not yet aware of. Or if somebody had older capacity, maybe they would apply some of their systems. It's hard to say. I really feel like the health of the mining industry, that's the foundation of the Bitcoin network. And it is an area where you get little glimpses that perhaps there's bad actors. You get little hints that perhaps there's things going on. It's not really public anywhere because these are all private companies. Some of of them are public companies and like that information just doesn't get out there. They're all very obtuse. I've literally contacted three different mining operations here in Washington state asking if they give tours and talk to podcasters and stuff like that. And either they say no or they just don't respond. They're just not interested in any public exposure at all. They don't even want people to really realize they're in the state. I actually pulled up the mempool.space mining dashboard and it currently shows that there are 14 main pools and the largest Foundry USA has 21.22% of the hash rate. So I think that if this data is correct, it would suggest that mining is pretty decentralized because even if you're the largest pool foundry, you only have one fifth of the hash rate. So if you try to start sniping other pools blocks, you're probably going to start losing blocks instead of competing honestly for the next block. Just that breakdown of mining pool capacity suggests that this probably isn't a problem right now. Yeah, I mean, if anybody has any insights, please do contact the show and let us know. And I think that's a great segue into feedback. Remember, you can always get in touch with the show using email, bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com or on Twitter at bitcoindadpod on Twitter. But the best way to get in touch with the show is via a boost. Boosts are a podcasting 2.0 technology which uses the Lightning Network to send a small amount of Satoshis or a large amount if you're feeling generous and a message directly to the show's Lightning node. And you can use a podcasting 2.0 app such as found 
Fountain.fm on Android, Castomatic on iOS, or Podverse if you like to podcast on your home computer. Now, can you see the boost, Chris? Because I added you to our split. Hey, hey fancy me. I've only got them for the last 22 hours. Why don't you read backwards and then I'll take over? Just a little bit ago, we just got uh, three sats with no message 30 minutes ago from Bdale86. See, that is a micropayment right there. Right. Right. Doesn't that just prove that the Lightning Network allows you to move value at a level that you could never do on the Visa Network? I know. I mean, <laughs> three sats. That's not even a penny, right? That's less than a penny. No, I don't think so. <laughs> but it proves the point. Uh, Captain Stack. That is the best price per engagement anyone's ever gotten. It's almost, yeah, it's almost no free. Kidding. Almost free, but not quite. No kidding. 250 sats from Captain Stacks. Uh, just three diamonds. I think he's uh, just saying he's holding. That was 19 hours ago. So these are fresh. Mm-hmm. And then Captain Stacks also, a double booster, burp, 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 22 hours ago. Interesting talk about op return wars. Have yourself some more diamonds and flames at 1,500 sats. So 14 hours ago, Marcel boosted in 1,700 sats for Peak Griftonomics. Thanks for the show. I enjoyed the oversized load format even if it took me a few days to get through it. Wow. Your discussion about commercial banking made me think of something. When Bitcoin wins, won't that also cause big problems for the economy if commercial banking is cut out and isn't there to give out loans, etc.? Will Coinbase be the new Chase Bank? Enjoy the last of my sats until I refill my wallet. Hey, thanks, Marcel. That's a great question. It is a great question. I think that commercial banking will have to change as it adapts to a different monetary environment. At the end of the day, we're always going to have banking. Galois, the company that builds the software behind the Bitcoin Beach wallet, they are building a Bitcoin bank software stack. The Bitcoin Beach wallet is a Bitcoin bank software stack. That means that you have accounts with a custodian. They create efficiencies by grouping together lightning transactions and interbank payments. The next step is stable coins and loans. So I think that that's all coming and it definitely is a problem within the scope of human ingenuity. The fact that it'll be different than banking today does not make me worried. It fills me with hope. Or it's very much like banking today. You got to ask yourself, do you really see a future where the U.S. government doesn't have its own currency, even if that is based on a Bitcoin reserve. But before we even get to that point, you look at commercial banking in the United States, it really all kind of is owned by a couple of really big banks. And those big banks are the ones that will be buying in and getting Bitcoin at the price they deserve. And that'll be down the road as regulation and things normalize. But the banks will probably own Bitcoin too. It'll probably be just part of their collateral strategy to make funds available to their clientele, just like they might sit on real estate, just like they might own some gold. I don't know what banks do, stocks. They'll have a basket of Bitcoin. That process, when the banks, those really big banks like your Black Rocks, when they begin buying up those reserves so they have large digital real estate to use as collateral, that's when you're really going to see the price climb. Also, a Bitcoin standard would probably result in smaller banks because the jumbo-sized banks today, like JP Morgan and Chase, they're what we call GSIBs, which is an acronym for Globally Systemic Something Bank. International bank, maybe globally systemic international bank. And so at the end of our monetary era, the way that banks survive is they get so big that they're too big to fail. It's a strategy that allows them to socialize their losses. Well, guess what? 
In a fiat system, you can socialize losses by printing money and bailing out an institution. But in a Bitcoin standard, there's no money printing. So this probably means that too big to fail banks just fail. And we end up with a more competitive commercial banking landscape that does have bank failures, does have banks that disappear. But this is actually part of a healthy marketplace that encourages good banking, good commercial credit creation, and not just throwing money at insiders who are politically connected. And you know, the consumer could be protected by Bitcoin because perhaps your collateral for your loan is in a multi-sig. And so when the bank goes bye-bye, they don't take your Bitcoin with them, right? But you can still prove to them ownership of the asset. I think that's going to protect the consumer. Right. I mean, Bitcoin enables different types of custody instead of just third-party custody. Well, maybe you could have second-party custody. Mm -hmm. The idea that you only would give away some custody to someone you have a relationship with. This isn't really possible before we had bearer digital money. So I think we're just currently imagining this world and it's hard to predict how it'll turn out. Gosh, that was a really good question. I can't believe we talked so much after a single boost. This is what I love about the boost is they bring up something that you and I never would have put in the show, Doc. We never would have planned that conversation. And we received a row of ducks, two, 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 two sats from LTGuy005 yesterday. Thanks a lot. And then two days ago, we received 450 sats from Nick's Bitcoin is amazing. I agree with you. Nick's Bitcoin is amazing. Yeah, that's what got me in Nick's. And the message was nice take on the Cleveland Fed. Thumbs up. Yeah, we do like Cleveland Fed. It was good to see that. They came out and had positive things to say about the Lightning Network and how it really does make Bitcoin a payments network. Now we have a boost and I'm not going to read it or tell you who it's from because the message is that this person has decided that they've been boosting so much they're tired of hearing their name on podcasts. So they are sending in a boost to inform us and then they're just going to be streaming. So this person, thank you so much for your support and oh yeah, we won't wear your name out. Don't worry. I will just say, seeing some of the same names show up over and over again is actually a big source of joy because it feels like those people are really supporting the show and that they're really getting value. So as a host... We do not tire of seeing the same names at all because it, it's really something special. There's a value for value exchange happening there. Yeah, definitely. And I feel a little sad when I miss a booster after an episode or two. I'm like, oh, oh yeah, where did they go? But I understand you're listening to a different show or something or you have to kind of spread the love around. And then two days ago, we got 1928 sats from Jason. Your cut of what Fountain paid me to listen to shows I was going to anyway. Thanks for making my drive time more enjoyable. This Fountain sat thing is kind of working for me. I've actually, in the last month, in the last month I went on a road trip, so I did like extended listening. But in the last 30 days, I've stacked 12,000 sats listening to podcasts. Holy moly. Yeah. I do listen to some of their promoted clips, which pay out at a much higher rate. And so the way their system works is if you kind of engage and, you know, you boost here and there, you you like a, a 10 sat like on a clip, that kind of stuff, they accelerate the amount of payments that they do. You know, and that's sats that I'll probably just keep on my Fountain FM wallet and then I'll just send them back out to podcasts I listen to. Okay. It's a nice little circular economy. They're literally buying engagement. And since they're paying in sats, I might be willing to play that game. Oscar talks about how they do it. So they have this feature that I think is well done. They have a promoted clip and it's clearly delineated as such. And then they have their regular clips too. And it's done in a nice way. And so you know what you're getting into. Essentially, a podcaster can pay to have their show highlighted and they pay in sats. And then Fountain redistributes those sats to the listener. So when you buy sponsorship in the Fountain app, you buy it with sats. 
that's where the sats come from. And the thing I have noticed, something you should consider looking into, is the Bitcoin podcasts that sponsor that slot are getting really good engagement. Like some of them are getting like 100 boosts and with, you know, responses and stuff, like really good engagement because it's a Bitcoin heavy audience in the app already. Fountain has an article on it. Oh, wow. It's a great way to also discover new podcasts. So not only are they clips that they pay you sats to listen to, but I picked up a new show through it. Not all of the sponsors are for me, but it's fine. It seems to be a system that's working. It does have like a daily limit, but all of that's in the FAQ they have on their website. Oh, I'll certainly check that out. Fountain.fm. Now, three days ago, we got 500 sats from Captain Stacks. Great content. Lightning Diamond Fire. A lot of us, myself included, drank the S2F Kool-Aid, but it was such nonsense. Rolling eyes. Yeah, I think it's a good lesson. Someone tells you what you want to hear. I was much less critical of it than I should have been. Yeah. Although it's a good reminder, that boost is a good reminder that when we're talking about it, I should remember that some of the people in the audience probably did buy into it. So I should have some grace about those things. Like I have to also remember some of you out there have altcoins and I don't judge you for it. I should give you more grace. So that boost is a good reminder. Right. And if I've been critical of people who have dabbled in alts, understand that that is just me holding up a mirror to myself, my past self that lost a lot of money, perhaps, maybe. And four days ago, we got 500 sats from Adopting Bitcoin. Thanks a lot. I think I know who that is. The Adopting Bitcoin conference comes to mind. Six days ago, we got 10 sats from Ignacio Potato, maybe. Hmm. And I'm just taking back to see any sats that we miss, some boosts that we miss. Congrats, by the way, on getting Helipad working again. The boosting operation is once again fully functional at the Bitcoin Dad Pod. Congratulations. Congratulations. Right. I had to learn Docker better. So that was a, a good experience for me. One week ago, we got 500 sats from Crypto Kyle, who was listening to Sidechains for Sandwiches V2. So when is Bitcoin Dad going to guest host on Self-Hosted or be a guest on Unplugged? He runs slash ran quite a lab. Hey, don't dox me, Crypto Kyle. <laughs> Those are video shows now, you know? No, not really. We do streaming video, though. So you'd have to have like a really cool mask. Ah, uh, okay. Well, I could probably... You'd be like Plan B, do a voice changer and like a fake avatar for you. I want to have a fake Dutch accent if we're going to do it like Plan B. <laughs> Deal. And then I think we missed this one. So a week ago, we got 2,223 sats from at Marcel. After yesterday's Rogers outage here in Canada, very happy to be a self-hoster watching stuff on Jellyfin from my LAN and to not rely on debit for my banking. That a single ISP could take down the debit network really reminded me of your show and your discussions about centralized banking. Wow. Great story. I also run Jellyfin. I love it. I mean, having your own personal Netflix with only shows that you want and movies that you want. It's so great. Whenever I'm somewhere and like someone's like, oh, let's look at Netflix. I'm just like, you know, we're just going to scroll for 10 minutes mm -hmm. and not watch anything. Like that's what's going to happen. And to play the dad card for a moment, it's also great when you've got kids because you can essentially just give them full access, but you know, everything on there is totally fine for them to watch. I really kind of got religious about having all of my stuff offline three or so, three and a half years ago when I realized that if I take my RV out into the woods, go somewhere where it's off grid. It is it is like getting, you can get like a week's worth of chill in like a couple of days, but I still wanted access to things like my notes and my videos and my Bitcoin and all that stuff. I all wanted that accessible and offline. And so that's when I really got the bug to start self-hosting and just bringing as much into my own land as possible. Plus it also helps with just spotty connectivity or a general outage and data tracking. Like there just started to be so many benefits to it. Totally agree. I think what people are going to realize is as we move to a more constrained future, 
future in terms of energy, infrastructure, investment. Relying on the cloud, relying on someone else's computer is probably going to have more uptime drawbacks than building stuff locally that you can control and power and optimize. Now, we missed quite a few boosts over the course of this month. My apologies for being on the road. So two weeks ago, we got 420 sats from Knowledge for Power to Free, who said, thanks for the introduction to BISC. Love a deep dive into new concepts. Yeah, we'll definitely be doing more of that in the future. Quick plug for RoboSats. Well, that's going to be an episode. Then the same booster also sent 420 sats and said, love the humor you both bring to the show. Hearing the show end with you two LARPing, Fave gave me a good laugh. Okay, glad someone appreciated that. And they also liked the self-custody, your first wallet walkthrough. So sounds like we could do some more of those detailed episodes. I would even love to go into Sparrow specifically in one of our episodes. I think that's really the, I feel like that's the wallet we should primarily recommend to the audience if they're using a desktop machine. It is a glorious wallet. I wonder if we should get Craig Raw to do that with us. Wouldn't that be fun? Like going through it with the creator? Oh, yes. That'd be amazing. I feel like we could swing that. Now, we also got 3,096 sats from Baffo two weeks ago. Hey, Baffo, thanks for the big boost. Who asks, how can BTC get distributed to the general population to become mainstream if it's owned by miners and Baffo writes priv individuals? Does that mean private or privileged? Not sure. Privileged is usually the accusation that Bitcoin gets because you have to have money to buy Bitcoin. Yeah, that's a good point. So I think that one, miners have real costs. Mining is a real activity that has real costs. And so that means that miners generally have to sell Bitcoin. And so even though it's fair to give Bitcoin to miners, they often have to spend that Bitcoin to pay for power and infrastructure. And so that distributes Bitcoin into the economy. The other thing that's cool about Bitcoin is that, first of all, I don't think early Bitcoiners are privileged because if you've been holding Bitcoin through multiple cycles, holding Bitcoin, just hodling it is really hard. Something that's so volatile, your hair turns gray. It's really, really rough to hold on to. It's a real struggle sometimes until the system clicks and you stop caring about the price and you start appreciating the other ways that it's reliable. So I kind of push back on the term of like privileged Bitcoiners because I got to be honest, even if you don't like early Bitcoiners, because, you know, many of them had crazy philosophies that led them to Bitcoin, I think they earned it. The other thing is Bitcoin is not proof of stake. So the only way you can get value from Bitcoin is essentially selling it. I mean, you can also borrow against it, but that's actually just selling it at a lower price than you were expecting, in my opinion, because of the volatility. So over time, big holders of Bitcoin become smaller holders of Bitcoin because it's fair money. All you can do is spend it. You can't use Bitcoin to get political power, to collude with the miners, and now you give yourselves extra Bitcoin. That's the fiat system. So over time, I think Bitcoin distributes. That's just a property of it. Yeah, and I think we're definitely seeing that now, especially as more use cases come online. When I was first into Bitcoin, there was these things called Bitcoin faucets, and and you could go to a web page and just get a Bitcoin for going to the web page. It was absolutely crazy. I mean, I don't remember if it was a full Bitcoin, but you would get some amount, large amount of Satoshis by just visiting a web page. That wasn't necessarily privilege. That was just sort of the geeks happened to be there first. But there's ways to get Bitcoin without paying for it. You can work and get paid in Bitcoin. There's absolutely a, a large contingent of people out there doing that now. And apps like Strike and Cash make it accessible to anybody over the age of 13 that's in the Western world. There's other systems outside of the West as well. But also, you know, 
know, you can buy very, very small amounts at a time. And yeah, some of us have very little spare money, especially with the price of everything right now, which is probably not helping the price of Bitcoin. People don't have spare cash, but you can buy fractions of a penny. You can buy a dollar at a time. You can buy $5 at a time, $10 at a time. Right. And actually own it. Slowly and steadily. So I think some people compare that to fractionally owning stocks. And it's true that fractional stock ownership is a thing today, but that's actually a quote unquote real stock that's custodied by someone else. And then they're kind of like promising to give you a share sort of at whatever price they decide. So I think Bitcoin is a lot more fair than alternatives. And what you see right now is um, a lot of people that are would be considered middle class. Now, you could say middle class is privileged, but it is a whole new tier of people that have access to tools to wealth. And from that, you will have business creation. You will have entrepreneurship. There is going to be a revolution for a whole lot of people that right now are way, way, way outside the rich layer of society. And so is it going to solve economics for 100 percent of everyone? No. But will it bring a wave of financial? sovereignty and potential wealth to a whole new swath of people in the middle class? Yes, that it will do. It already has done that for some early adopters. I mean, you have people that held and now they, they're millionaires. They are absolute millionaires for tiny investments. And they have gone from living in, in tiny little homes and apartments. I have a couple of individuals in mind that I know of. And, and now they're super well off. Yeah, it sounds like you're describing someone. Yeah. And they're super well off now. And they're, li they're living very comfortably and they've managed the asset very responsibly. And to them, it's funny, to them, $20,000 is still an outrageously great price. Like they are very happy with $20,000. It just depends on when you got in and what price you paid. I think the biggest barrier is knowledge and accessibility to technology. But you just can't solve that for everybody. But we can make a really, really really big dent and it doesn't diminish the progress and the change it will bring. Yeah. I mean, I think that when Bitcoiners talk about never selling, I think they're overstating their case because at a, at a certain price, suddenly you have so much Bitcoin relative to everything else you own that it actually makes sense to sell a little so that you kind of diversify. Yeah. You know, that's just a natural. Yeah, I think you totally see that smart thing to do when you end up in a concentrated position. It also means you could just have extremely over collateralized loans. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like this whole collateralized lending thing is going to go into hibernation for a, a cycle. Okay, we have a few more boosts here, so let me just run through these. Two weeks ago, Swolf Bitcoin sent us 100 sats. Great to hear more about Brian. He's referring to Brian Solston, our Washington State candidate for U.S. Senate. Excited to see more socially progressive candidates bringing the Bitcoin message to U.S. politics. Yeah, I agree. That was a fun conversation. 706 sats from LTGuy005 two weeks ago, and another 100 sats from Swolf Bitcoin, who said, love the show. He's talking about sidechains for sandwiches v2, one of my new go-to resources for reliable info and analysis regarding Bitcoin and macro. Hey, thanks. We also got a few sats from Knowledge Power Free. We received a 2100 sat boost from PLT Rent for Sidechains for Sandwiches. Enjoyed the show. Thank you. We also received two weeks ago a boost from Cass Plan, 3690 sats. Nice to know that the Smurfs are into Bitcoin too. That was our high-pitched episode. Sorry about that again. <laughs> As well as a row of ducks from 2222 sats from Yoshi Satoshi, who writes, thanks for listening to feedback about the pitch issue and reissuing the episode with the audio fixed. I'm curious to hear on the next episode about what happened. I know very little about digital audio files. Well, I think I explained, but basically you can increase the speed of a file. It's also useful for editing if you have to listen to something quickly. But in digital audio workstation, when you increase the speed, it doesn't necessarily lower the pitch the way that increasing the speed 
read in a audio listening app like AntennaPod or something works. So if you get used to listening to it at a high speed, you might forget that it is actually also at a high pitch like I did. Now, two weeks ago, we also got a boost to two two sats from Thornton, Maryland. And now this had to do with my comment on Stephen Molyneux, who is a podcaster who allegedly runs a cult and is sort of a bad personality. Thornton, Maryland disagrees and thinks that Stephen Molyneux is sort of a reasonable actor. And Thornton links to a a website that I'm not going to mention. And I would just comment and say, uh, listen, if you take someone at face value, they can lie to you. I think it's important when you're dealing with a controversial figure to learn the context of that person and see what other people are saying. Now, sometimes people are unjustly attacked or persecuted. I do not believe that Stephen Molyneux is such a person. I think that if you look at the context around this person, the news reporting, what other people say about them, you'll see that this is uh, not a good actor, not a good influence, and someone that you should probably avoid. We also received two weeks ago a boost from Theodore, 225 sats. Hey, Alvin and Simon, invite me to your podcast next time. It sounded like a fun time. I believe Alvin and Simon are chipmunks. We also received a boost from Turquoise Fox, who said, hey, your node seems down recently. Is it? Uh, Yes, it is. Sorry. The node went down and we switched to the voltage cloud. And I think that basically wraps it up. So thanks for sitting through that boost backlog. And we should be up to date. So our next episode will just be fresh boosts on fresh topics. Fresh boosts. So go grab a podcasting 2.0 app. We like Fountain, Podverse, and Castomatic, but you can also grab Breeze if you don't want to switch apps. B-R-E-E-Z dot technology. And all of the apps are listed at newpodcastapps.com. And thank you for listening to the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Thursday, July 21st, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin dad recording as always with oh me me Chris thanks for being here I thought you dropped (laughs) (laughs) I like to keep it weird thank you so much for listening see you next time